Well, I have one more installment for you about Biosphere 2. And then we're done with that. But um, there's one more detail. So if you weren't here the past couple of weeks, uh, Biosphere 2 is a, a, an experiment that's been run in the Arizona desert. It's a three-acre a large airtight enclosure uh, in which for two years, eight people with their 3,800 species of plants and animals um, survived. And the idea was that this uh, airtight enclosure would be able to produce enough oxygen um, and enough food for these people to live for two years. And uh, as we've been looking over the past couple of weeks, there were some successes. They learned a lot. Uh, there was also some failures. For example, uh, when everybody was basically dying because there was not enough oxygen. <laughs> um, but we learned a lot from that, and they, they ended off that experiment, and then almost immediately afterwards started another one. The experiment ended in September 1993, and then it was repeated in uh, March of 1994. And so what had happened is when the oxygen levels got so low that the people were you know, running at about 14% oxygen instead of uh, 21%, uh, management eventually stepped in and injected oxygen into the system and installed a CO2 scrubber to get rid of the carbon dioxide and that helped them sustain for the rest of the two years. So now they knew how to do that. They knew what had gone wrong and how the concrete actually had absorbed um, some of the um, oxygen that it shouldn't have and, and all those types of things. So now they had fixed it. So the, there was a whole new crew of biospherians that moved in and everything was going well. They managed to get 100% food production, the oxygen levels were fine, everything was, was going well, but the problem with the experiment this time was that the people didn't trust management. You see, the management of the experiment, the people on the outside who were running the whole experiment the first time around, um, they were keeping a close eye on what was going on, and the Biospherians, even though they knew they were running out of oxygen, they were constantly being tested, and they realized that the oxygen levels were getting lower and lower, they, they didn't panic, um, they didn't object, they just carried on and did the next right thing, carried on with their farming or whatever, and they just trusted that management would step in if things got really dangerous, and that's exactly what happened. On two occasions, management stepped in to increase oxygen levels to make sure that they were fine, even though the journalists out there were saying, oh, well, that's cheating. You know, that's, um, that's messing with the experiment, but it was either that or our people were going to die. But the second group, something went wrong. There was, a, there was an internal dispute among management. And it led to a big fight and factions developing and the CEO of the project was fired. And a little detail is that the CEO was this time around married to one of the Biospherians who was in there. <laughs> and she got fired. And um, the next day, something happened. So this, this all went down on um, April 1st, 1994. Bankers arrived at the site in limousines with restraining orders and took over management of the experiment, even though they had no scientific background. And so what happened is the man who was financing all of this, the, the billionaire who was, you know, footing the bull, he replaced the management team with Steve Bannon. Yes, the same Steve Bannon that would later be a counselor to Donald Trump and would eventually be uh, arrested for mail fraud and um, what was the other thing he was arrested for? something else. Um, and he, he was now in charge of this project. So this was before he became uh, famous. 
money laundering. That was the other thing that he was charged for later. So this is now the guy in charge. Steve Bannon's in charge of the Biosphere Project, and the people weren't sure about this. In fact, people were protesting this. The previous Biospherians were against that decision, saying you can't have somebody who knows nothing about science making decisions of what to do with the people in there. So two of the Biospherians from the previous project showed up three days later at 3 a.m., and in the darkness of night, they opened up the emergency hatches. They knew how to do that and let oxygen in. They smashed five windows so that oxygen would be able to come in and help these people. And they tried to contact the people inside just to warn them what was going on. Well, they were arrested and there was a trial and it was a big fiasco. Um, but all of this happened because they didn't trust management. And so eventually they had to shut down the project and said this is a failure, they, they ended it prematurely, they pulled the people out. Um, the court case, basically the defense was, well, we were doing what we thought our consciences demanded because these people were in danger and the people in charge didn't know what they were doing. And that might actually have been true. So eventually it was found in favor of, of um, the, the people who were arrested. So everything worked out well for them. But this is the lesson we learned from that. When people lose faith in those who are meant to look after them, chaos ensues. And you can, you can withstand a lot of pressure and a lot of difficulty and a lot of danger if you know that the people looking after you are competent and are managing the situation properly. And so today we see two people faced with a choice of whom to trust. So turn your Bibles to the days that the judges ruled Israel, um, the book of Ruth. Ruth, just after the book of Judges, um, we're still in chapter 1. To remind you that this is happening at the same time that the book of Judges is happening, probably around the time of Gideon, that famine that uh, led Gideon to be raised up as the judge to, to drive out the Midianites. Um, that famine is what drove Elimelech to leave the promised land of Israel. And in leaving Israel, he takes Naomi, his wife, his two sons, Malon and Kilion, and they go live in Moab. And they're there for 10 years, um, but Elimelech dies, Malon dies, Kilion dies, leaving Naomi and uh, her two daughters-in-law, two Moabite gals that married into the family, Ruth and Orpah, and they're now left alone in Moab. So we've been looking at that and, and the concept of immigrating to tragedy, uh, trying to escape God's sovereignty, the choice that Elimelech made. So over the past three weeks, we've been looking at three responses to the bitter pill of God's sovereignty. Three responses. We first looked at Elimelech for a week, and uh, his first response was to ignore it. He tried to ignore God's sovereignty. God is in control of Israel. He's sovereign over Israel. He's busy punishing Israel for their uh, idolatry in the cycle of the judges, and until they repent, people are going to die from the famine, and so I'm going to leave. I'm going to take my family, and he abandons the promised land. He abandons the covenant people of God, and he ignores sovereignty, but was he able to escape it? No. You cannot outrun God's sovereignty. And we said, you can ask Jonah about that. So Elimelech dies anyway. So then secondly, we looked at another response to God's sovereignty, and that is to acknowledge it. Remember, just to redefine sovereignty, sovereign, the doctrine of sovereignty teaches that God is sovereign or in control of everything to the most minute detail. He's in control of the big things that happen, 
He's in control of the little things that happen and everything in between. Nothing in this world happens without God's direct involvement, permission, and ordination. And Naomi acknowledges this. And we looked at her speech where she, she says that it's the hand of the Lord that has gone against me. And she changes her own name to bitter. Her name means pleasant, Naomi, but she changes it to Mara, bitter, because she says God has dealt bitterly with me. So at least she's acknowledging sovereignty, right? She's, she understands that even the bad things that are happening to her and her family are from the hand of God. But now we're going to look at a third response, and I would submit to you that this is a better response. Uh, look, acknowledging sovereignty is still better than ignoring it. But we're going to look at Ruth's response today, embracing it. The third possible response to God's sovereignty is to embrace it, to cast yourself on God's sovereignty. So let me read for you again from verse 6. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people and given them food, that the famine was over. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May Yahweh deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they shall become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices, and they wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you do not, or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may Yahweh do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. One of the most poignant and emotional scenes, perhaps, in, in all of the Old Testament this bond between this mother and her daughter-in-law. And, and the bond that she has with Ruth and Orpah, the bond that Naomi has with them, is genuine. And it's emotional. And you can sense the emotion in the language here. They're, they're crying. They're crying out. They're, they're, they're desperate here. And so we see a decision being made. But this decision, one person's making the decision out of rationality, tainted with emotion, and the other one is making a decision made out of theology. 
despite emotion, and even despite rationality, really. So let's start with this idea. The, what Naomi's doing is she's heard now that Israel's no longer in a famine. She can go back. She can go get bread. This would not be an irresponsible thing for her to do. But she's got these two daughters-in-law. And as we said last week, this is, this is major baggage. Yes, there is a responsibility in the Leverite system, a system in the book of Leviticus that said it was the, the role of the nearest male relative to look after a widow. So Naomi can just show up back in Bethlehem from, from when she comes and say, I, I'm here, I'm sorry I left you 10 years ago to suffer and a lot of your people died in the famine and we try to do better, but I'm here. And according to the law of Moses, you need to look after me. And remember we've said that this little village of Bethlehem is kind of like a biosphere of godliness. It's a little snapshot of normality in the midst of the, the moral and spiritual darkness of the book of Judges, you've got this little group of people trying to do the right thing, as we shall see play out. And so she knows the character of the population of Bethlehem, and she wants to go and put herself at their mercy. But imagine she shows up, and with her two suitcases, she also has two daughters-in-law, Moabite widows that have no relatives there, and say, can you take me in, please, and look after me for the rest of my life? And by the way, I have these two young Moabites with me that you're going to have to look after too. And so Naomi realizes, this doesn't make any sense. We need to play the cards we've been dealt, and, and the odds are against us. So let's, let's do what's statistically most profitable for us, most probable is that you go back to Moab and have the Moabites look after you, go back to your mom's house, and she says, you know, and, and find peace in the house of your husband, in other words, your future husband's. There's a chance that you'll be able to remarry a Moabite that'll look after you. I'm going to go to Bethlehem, at least I'm showing up alone, and I don't have the baggage of my daughters-in-law, and may God deal with us where we end up. And so this is, a, this is a difficult thing because the bond that they have is genuine. It's obviously genuine. It's obviously a strong one. They've lived together in the same household now for 10 years. They've grieved the loss of their loved ones together. This is a tight little unit and now it's about to be broken apart. And their commitment, the girl's commitment to Naomi is understandably an emotional one. But it's not the wisest decision to stay with her from a human point of view. The wisest decision is to go back to Moab. And so Naomi is being rational, not emotional, and she reasons and she paints this comic picture. It really is a parody, isn't it, where she says um, in verse 12, turn back my daughters, go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. And then she says, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? I mean, she has a point here. Her reasoning breaks through the emotion. And, and, and she kind of says, think about this. Is this your plan? Your plan is to come with me and I meet someone. Let's say I met someone today. We got married today. We conceived today. What are you going to do? Wait around another 15 years to marry the teenager? That's your plan? And she's not just being, this isn't comic relief here. This little parody, this little caricature of a situation is literally the only hope they have of having someone look after them. 
is if Naomi can produce offspring to look after them because no one else is going to do it back in Bethlehem. And so Orpah changes her mind. She's come so far, but she, she thinks, you know, I can't think with my emotion. I can't think with my heart. You have to think with my head. I have to think with what's best for everybody involved, including myself. And so she changes her mind and she turns back. But Ruth, on the other hand, processes this rational argument and rejects it. And her decision is not an emotional one. She doesn't appeal to, but you're my mother-in-law and you've done so much for me and this is what my husband would want and what are you going to do without me? That's not her reasoning. She commits because of Yahweh. This is a theological decision that she's making. It doesn't make any rational sense. There's no statistical advantage here, but there's a theological one. She knows something that the Bible is trying to teach us from page one to the end is that whenever you have a choice to make, you always side with Yahweh. It doesn't matter if the odds are against you. It doesn't matter if their army is bigger. It doesn't matter what the disease is. It doesn't matter what the emperor says. We're going to see this throughout the whole Bible. You always side with God. No matter what happens. And so she has this amazing declaration of commitment, Ruth does. In verse 15, Naomi says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Now just pause there for a moment. This is a very important point for you to realize. This is not just living in this country or living in that country. This is a theological choice. This is a spiritual decision. You know, in those days, obviously, it was very common for, it was expected that the wife would adopt the religion of her husband. And so when Malon and Kilion marry these two Moabites, they get introduced to the world of Yahwehism what we would eventually call Judaism. And they learn some of the traditions, but they can't keep the feasts. They can't do the Feast of Booths. There's no one there. They they can't go to the temple or the tabernacle. They can't can't really be Jewish because they've left all that. But they've learned a lot about it, and they learn about God from what their husbands taught them, what Naomi's taught them. and So they know something, but... They're really only Jewish by marriage, not by decision, not by commitment, but by family. And so everybody understands that when Orpah is going back to Moab, she is leaving Yahweh. She's leaving what we would know to be the true religion to go back to the Moabites, to go and worship Shemosh. Shemosh was the, the god of the Moabites. They were... Um, polytheists, they believed that there were multiple gods, but they're, they're actually technically henotheists. A henotheist is a person who recognizes that there's many other gods, but chooses one um, to be devoted to. So that's different from monotheism, which is what Yahwehists believe, that none of the other gods even actually exist, and that there is actually only one god. So this is a major decision that's being made here. And Orpah chooses not only to leave Naomi, but to leave Yahweh. And they understand that. And that's what she's saying. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. And then she tells them, you return after your sister-in-law. Otherwise, you're choosing basically to give up your life. 
on the hopes that my religion's the right one. But Ruth said to her, do not urge me to leave you. And the word there for urge is the word pressure. It can be translated assault. Don't push me away from you. It can be translated touch as well. Don't urge me. Don't pressure me to leave you or to return from following you. You can just sense the resolution in her voice. This is an emotion. This is a decision I'm making, and I'm going to stick to it. And there's nothing anyone can do to change my mind. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And in the Hebrew, there's not even the the verb there. It just says, your people, my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I die. Where you will be buried, I will be buried. And may Yahweh do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. This is a, um, a self-imprecation. It was, it's, I think it appears another 12 times in the Old Testament. It's, um, it, it's a common way that Jews would speak when they, they say, I've made this commitment and may Yahweh do do so to me and more. And, and nobody really knows what that so means. Usually when you make an oath, may God do this particular thing and the stipulations have been laid out. But in this case, you also see Jonathan say this to David, may, may God do so to me and more if I don't help you, blah, blah, blah. And uh, the, there's an idea, one commentator suggests, and a lot of people like this idea, that when they would say, do so to me, there would be a gesture involved, like this. Index finger slit across your throat. Just as an example. May God do so to me and more. You know. It's kind of like when we were kids. I don't know. I'm, I'm, did this happen in America as well? In South Africa we would do this thing. You make a promise. You say, I cross my heart and hope to die. Did you ever do that? Okay, some of you, yes. Yeah, some of you are like, wow, they're weird. Um, I cross my heart and hope to die. And you do this little thing with your hand as part of the gesture, you know. Um, they should do that in court instead of like, do you swear to tell the truth? You say, cross your heart and hope to die. And then there's somebody there with a sword. Um, <laughs> but that's kind of the idea here. It's like, where, where you go, I will go where you do. And may God do this to me and more if I break my covenant. Like, so she's just saying, nothing is going to part us but death. If anything but death parts me from you. So death do us part. I mean, this is a major commitment. But she doesn't only refer to God as, you know, your Elohim will be my Elohim. She then moves into, may Yahweh do so to me and more. She is invoking the covenant name of God. It's the name he delivered to Moses. Who shall I say sent me? Tell them I am who I am sent me. Yahweh. And so now that they're free from their husbands and free from the choice... Of, to, to make a choice of religion, Orpah chooses her former religion. Now, let me ask you this. What counsel would you give Ruth? You know, if she's like, okay, mom, I just need to bounce something off my, my best friend, my biblical counselor, you know, the head of my lady small group. I'm just going to run this by somebody. And she calls you. What should I do? There's no hope of me being taken care of. I'm, I'm walking into a situation where I'm going to be the homeless beggar. 
I'm going to be the person gleaning the leftovers in the field. I'll never own property. I'll never have a job. I'll never have a husband or kids or anything. Or I can, I can take my chances where there's at least people who know me and there's, there's a family system and there's people that want to look after me and maybe I can get married. And What should I do? What would you tell her? See, it all depends on if you believe in God. That's how your advice is going to go. Because from a human statistical point of view, the best thing to do is stack the chances in your favor that you're going to be able to have a, a beautiful life ahead of you. But Ruth never passed Statistics 101 in college. But she did pass Theology with distinction. Because she basically says, I don't care what the wise thing to do from a human point of view is. I want to do what's wise from a divine point of view. And it's always best to choose Yahweh. So let me pause and ask you this at this point. Are you an Orpah? Think about who Orpah is. She's, she's not the bad guy in all of this. She's really a victim of circumstance, but here's a woman who is pulled into the right religion, which we know from Scripture, Yahweh is the only true God. But she's pulled into this religion by a family, not by a personal decision. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're here today because you were born into a Christian home. If you had been born into a Buddhist home, you, you would be at the Buddhist temple today. You were born into a Christian home. You you're born in Mobile, Alabama in the south where it's very normal to be a Baptist. It's not persecuted. It's not looked down upon. There's no real decision to make. Maybe you went to a Christian school Maybe you went to a Christian college. Maybe your friends are Christian. Your parents are Christian. And so you're just, you're just here. You grew up and then you got married to another good Baptist in church. And now you have your own kids and you're raising them up like Orpah. In the religion by association, by family, by circumstance. What Orpah gets is a decision to make for herself because the circumstance changed and the family disappears. Maybe you're here because, well, you're Catholic and your husband's Baptist and for the sake of the peace in the family and the kids, you come to church with your husband. So my question is, what would it take for you to actually make a decision for yourself whether you belong here? What circumstances would need to change for you to decide, no, now I'm making the decision for myself. What would it take you f to shake you free of Christianity? What circumstance in your life would it take to shake you free of Christianity? This is what happened to Orpah. It was a tragedy, but it led her to the decision and she chose... Okay, I'm done with this. For some of you, it's going to be, in the coming years, persecution at work. 
put in situations where you have to, if you side with God and Christ and what he says in the Bible, you are going to be ostracized at work. You are going to be persecuted. You're going to get into trouble for not supporting what you're supposed to support. Not wearing the little rainbow flag on rainbow day or whatever it is. You're going to have to make decisions and you're going to get into trouble. And maybe that's just enough for you to say, you know what, I never picked this for myself anyway. I'm just going to do what the world does and hope nobody at church even notices or cares. For some of you, you teenagers, you're going to soon pop out the top of your Christian school or wherever it is you went, homeschool, graduate at 14 or whenever homeschoolers graduate. You're going to go off to college. And now for the first time in your life, you're in a different city away from your parents. No one's waking you up on a Sunday morning. No one's dragging you to church. No one's making you feel guilty if you miss. In fact, none of your roommates go to church. They're all getting over their hangover from last night. And you are going to have to choose for yourself, do I drag myself to church all by myself? Across town. When everyone else is studying for finals that are coming up next or just recovering from their party lifestyle or just enjoying some well-deserved time off. I now need to go to church. And for some of you, that's going to be enough to shake you free of Christianity. In fact, I think, I would submit to you, uh, maybe, I mean, I haven't done any statistical analysis yet, but just in my experience, and maybe you would agree with me, that that is the most common thing that shakes people free of Christianity is going off to college. We hear this in, the, in our baptismal testimonies all the time. I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a Christian school. I got baptized when I was six years old. I've been serving in the whatever forever. I won all the Iwana awards. I went off to college, and I went off the rails. Listen, Christians don't go off the rails. What happened to college is you realized you were an Orpa. You were never really in. This was never your religion. It was just your practice by association with your family. Now you get real temptation and, and real opportunity to do things you really want to do and your heart tells you, this is what I want. I don't want that. I don't want to abstain from sin. I want to experiment with sin. Christians don't experiment with sin. And so you basically say, well, what's best is that I get to still call myself a Christian and just not go to church anymore. Christians go to church. So have you adopted Christianity because it's your family religion and not your own? For some of you here, it's some trial in your life that hasn't happened yet. But God in His mercy is going to allow something very difficult to happen to you. A health trial, or financial trial, betrayal of a spouse, death of a child, something Something extremely difficult to get through. And in those trials, your faith is proven to be true or revealed to be false. And maybe that's what it's going to take to shake you free of your Christianity. Well, if God's going to do this to me, then I want no part in Him. I've had a man sit in my office and use that exact phrase. He lost his business and he said... If that's the kind of God I serve, I want nothing more to do with him. And all that took was a little bit of money that he lost. 
What would it take to shake you free? Ruth clings to Naomi. And not because she's the mom. She clings because she has at some point already determined this is the real God. For the rest of you, it's it's just a shaking that's waiting to happen. You are a fair-weather Christian. You got one foot in the church and one foot in the world. And as you stand there straddling the, the fence sitting, when the ground starts to quake, you're going to have to pick a side. And are you going to plant both your feet in the church or are you going to jump ship into the world? Orpah chose her people and her gods. Ruth took a leap of saving faith. Orpah chose statistical safety, but Ruth knew that the safest place to be is in God's will. The safest place is always to be in God's will. I want you to turn for a moment to Joshua chapter 2. If you've been in our evening service, we've been in Joshua recently, just before Judges, and in chapter 2 we meet a lady, Rahab, who's actually connected to our story, as we've seen in the past. Rahab is a She's a Canaanite. This is after the 40 years of um, wandering in the wilderness. Israelites have come out of of, uh, Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness. They finally get to take the promised land. Moses dies. Joshua takes over. The first city that they're going to conquer is Jericho. You know the story with the walls, and they go around, and God helps them to do that. But before that, um, Joshua sends two spies to just go and check out what's happening. And when they get there, there's this lady, Rahab, who hides them from the people that are searching for them. Rahab is a prostitute. She is a worshiper of a foreign god. And she says this in Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. She says, uh, so in verse 8 it says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof, and she said to them, I know that Yahweh has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Why? For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you. That happened 40 years ago. When you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. To Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. This was the story of while they were in the wilderness God helped them to defeat these two armies. And this news has made it to Jericho. And verse 11. And as soon as we heard it our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And then she asks him, please swear to me that you'll spare my life because I know you're going to be successful. So here we have an example of a pagan who has heard a report of the true God and has decided that is the true God, not my God. But she has no way to do anything about that. It's not like there's a little synagogue, a little tabernacle in Jericho. And the Israelites show up, and in God's providence, in God's sovereign electing grace, the spies end up picking her house. And she has been waiting for this. She had very little knowledge of Yahweh, just knew the stories from the Exodus. But that was enough to convince her. 
You see how God does the work in your heart? You don't need a lot of information. You just need enough. And the little bit of faith that she has, God gives her more light. If you have a little bit of faith in the light that you have, he gives you more light. And here these Israelites show up and she declares her allegiance. And she doesn't even know what she's getting into. She doesn't know that she's never going to be allowed to eat shrimp again. There's no bacon on her breakfast table anymore. She doesn't know that she's, she has to wear, you can't wear polyester, can't wear blended fabrics. She's got all sorts of rules. She's got 613 rules she's going to have to learn. She doesn't know it and she doesn't care. She is siding with Yahweh. she does and you know the story she's the one that's saved she marries one of the Hebrews and she gets brought into the family line that eventually produces Jesus Christ the Messiah she didn't know what was going to happen in the future but she knew this you always side with Yahweh go back to Ruth Ruth's choice is the choice Rahab made. Cast myself on the mercy of Yahweh against all odds. So Ruth leaves family. She leaves lands to be all in. She goes all in with God's people, God's land. And that's my challenge to you. Are you all in? That's the decision. That's what you've got to make. That's what you have to do. Are you a fair-weather Christian? Are you the, the fence-sitter? Or are you going you're to put all your eggs in the one basket and side with Yahweh, come what may? We know that throughout history, more and more and more revelation is given about this great God and what He's capable of and what He's willing to do in order to rescue those that side with Him. And ultimately, that comes down to the person of Jesus Christ. And eventually, Jesus Christ says in John 14, 6, I am the way the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And at that moment, there's a, a narrowing down of the gate, and that is the turnstile you need to go through. And you need to choose. Am I going to choose Christ over anything and everything and everyone, and no matter what happens? And throughout his life, Jesus kept saying, think carefully before you choose. People wanted to choose him all the time. And he said, nope, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You're not going to be able to cope because you like a hotel. And I got nothing. People would come and say, oh, I want to come, I first need to bury my father, but then I'm going to come follow you. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. You're not worthy to follow me if you come to me with any conditions. He said, before you make any decision, count the cost. Like the person who builds a tower, he first makes sure he has enough money to finish before he starts. And so that's what I'm asking you to do today. Count the cost, make the decision, one way or the other. Otherwise, what are we even doing here? What are you doing here on a Sunday? Hedging your bets? Keeping mom and dad happy? Well, kids, you have to obey your parents. So, <laughs> What are you doing here? Make your choice. In 1 Kings 18, this is what Elijah said to the Israelites that had been kind of worshipping Yahweh, worshipping Baal. They were kind of between the two. And this is what he said. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. In Revelation 3.15, Jesus said this, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. 
Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Interesting, Jesus says, I wish that you were one or the other. I wish that you were completely for me or I wish that you were completely against me. But because you're, you can't decide, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. It's this image of, you know, you drink tea, you like your tea to be hot or you like your tea to be cold. You like iced tea or you like hot tea. But nobody wants to mix those two. That's what Jesus says. Be hot, be cold. If you're cold to me and you've rejected me, I can work with that. At least you know where the person stands. I'm not a Christian. I reject Jesus Christ. Okay, well now let's talk about what the scriptures say. But a person says, no, I accept Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. But then they live like the world. That just confuses everybody. Now all the real Christians are confused because you call yourself a Christian, you're not. And all the unbelievers are confused because they're like, well, you don't live like a Christian. So if you're going to be a non-Christian, that's fine. You're welcome to visit here as much as you want. Just don't tell people you're a Christian. Sometimes one of the most dramatic things that I have to do in my ministry, it usually, it usually works this way. Usually a couple comes to me for marriage. They want to get married in the church or whatever. They don't go to the church, but they've heard, you know, I do a marriage sermon that they like, so they show up at church and they ask, and then I ask them some questions, and it turns out they're living together. So I always ask, so why do you want, to, why do you want a pastor to marry you? Because usually... You're in a church, so that's the boss that's going to marry you. Why do you want me to marry you? Well, no, we grew up Christian, and we're Christians, and everything, blah, blah, blah. But now I know that they're not because they don't go to church. So then I ask the next question. So what's the living arrangement here? And they're usually living together. And then I say, okay, well, I'm going to give you an option now. You can either move out and pursue purity, as the Bible says, or you can get married right now, because they're usually like, well, we can't afford that, okay? Get married right now, and we'll do the wedding later. Or you can continue to live together. I'll still do the wedding, but you can't call yourself a Christian. That usually gets them very upset. I've had two different couples get saved because of that challenge. And I've had more just leave and find another pastor. <laughs> But friends, what are we doing here? If you call yourself a Christian, you have to act like a Christian. If you don't want to act like a Christian, that's fine. It's a free country. Just don't call yourself a Christian. Choose. So with Jesus telling you to choose hot or cold, and Elijah saying stop limping between both opinions, and Orpah showing you, well, hey, you have the freedom to go back to Shemosh if you want, and Ruth saying, well, you have the freedom to cling to Yahweh and his people, my question to you is, what's stopping you from making the commitment? What's it going to take for you to decide? You say, well, the cost, you know, I'd have to give up my sin, I'd have to give up this relationship, I'd have to give up the dishonest business practices that bring me so much money, I'd have to give up this or that or this or that. Fair enough. Christianity can cost you everything. That's, that's a legitimate reason to reject Christ. Well, I just, I can't, Stop the sin. I don't want to stop the sin. I just love the sin too much. Fair enough. It's true. You can't bring your sin. You have to leave it at the cross. You can't bring your sin in with you. Those are good reasons. But is it too much to ask that if you're going to reject Christ, you just come out and say it? 
rather than claiming his name, taking his name in vain? So make your choice. So I don't know what the future holds. I don't, what's that going to do with my family? What's that going to do with my friends? What's that going to do with my job? I don't know. Ruth didn't know. That's what faith looks like. You just do the next right thing. You just choose God. You side with God and trust that whatever happens is his will. Cast yourself on the sovereignty of God. Or in the language of the biosphere, you need to trust management. And our management is worth it. He is worthy of trust. He is, as we have seen in the doctrine of sovereignty, intimately involved in every little thing that's happening in your life. Jesus said that he knows the hairs on your head. Jesus said that not a sparrow dies without his say-so. He's intimately involved in everything. He's competent. He's good. He's loving. He's willing to sacrifice himself for you. This is what's on offer. What will you choose? Jesus Christ loved you enough to come down here and live the life you couldn't live, a life of perfection and righteousness. And he offered that up on the cross, bearing your sin and your shame and your guilt. And what you need to do is cast yourself on him. Come what may. Don't be an Orpah. Be a Ruth. Choose Jesus over your sin in the world. Plant both your feet firmly in the church. Cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. And he will hold you fast. Let's pray. And Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word and how it reminds us to, to make a choice. I thank you for the many that we've heard recently in the testimony of baptism that have chosen you over the world and you over their sin, chosen to be disciples of Christ, come what may. And for those who are still sitting on the fence, Lord, I pray that your spirit would guide them, that he would convict them of their sin and Show them the comfort and peace and forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ alone and his work on their behalf on the cross. I want to pray especially, Lord, for our children. They have been divinely appointed to be born into our homes and be part of our church. What a blessing that is. But I pray, Lord, that you would help them to take that accountability seriously. The light that they have been given has not been given to everyone in the world. What a privilege it is to hear the gospel from parents from a young age. I pray, Lord, that you'd help them even to make a decision, make a stand for Christ even in their school. Pray for those who are in difficult relationship situations, um, those who have trouble with their in-laws. All of us are in different places in our life, Lord, but we, we choose you. And we know that you love us and that you are good and you are in control. And so we cast ourselves on you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.